are listening to the Elephant in the Room podcast with your host, Sutta Singh. Each week, we will bring you a diverse range of inspiring speakers on issues of inequality and inequity. You will hear stories about fairness, justice, belonging, and about best practice for creating a more inclusive workplace. So, if you are an individual or leader interested in a fairer, equitable, compassionate society and workplace, this podcast is for you. My guest on the Elephant in the Room podcast this week is Tokunbo Ajasa Oluva, CEO of Career Ready, a national social mobility charity in the UK. Tokunbo has a background in social enterprise leadership and last year was highly commended as a rising chief executive at the Third Sector Awards. Thank you for being a guest on the Elephant in the Room podcast today. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Could you introduce yourself very quickly and tell the audience a bit about your background? Yep. So my name is Tokumbo Ajessa Alua. I'm Chief Executive of Career Ready, a social mobility charity that works across the UK. My background, I suppose I've worked in the third sector and the private sector, kind of jumped from one to the other over the years. But what's been the golden thread throughout my career is working with young people particularly in the focus of youth empowerment and helping young people to realize their potential. But before doing any of that type of work, I trained as a journalist and I worked in the media industry for about a decade or so Wow! before making that shift into leadership, working in the third sector and young people. That's quite an interesting career path. And I love that golden thread about youth and empowerment. Could you tell us a bit more about Career Ready and what the organization does? So Career Ready, essentially, we're a charity that believes talent doesn't have a particular postcode. So for us, we consciously focus on working in areas of the UK that have a high level of deprivation. And what we do is we work in partnerships with schools and colleges in that region to identify young people that are in need of our support to help them realize their potential when it comes to career choices. So how we do that practically is through three things. We provide each young person with a mentor. We provide them access to masterclass workshops that are delivered by volunteers from our employer partners. And we offer them a paid internship at one of our employer partners during the summer holidays. And those three things together help the young people make informed choices about their futures It exposes them to new possibilities that they didn't believe were available to young people with their background. It helps them to increase their self-esteem. And importantly, it helps them to grow their social capital. Very interesting. And this is so important because if they don't have that support, the direction that young people take could be very different because they don't necessarily have those networks, whether it's within their family or outside their families. So right at the start, I want to ask you this question. People would leave this for the end. What are the parts of your job that you love and the part that you don't like much? Okay. I think the part that I love is when I get the opportunity to go out on the road and see our program in action. So whether that's visiting a young person when they're on their internship, at the end of their internship, when they're doing their presentation, and their level of growth in confidence and self-esteem that you see in that young person. Or when I get a text or a message, an email that one of our young people have now secured employment with one of our partners, those bits are best. Being able to see, go out on the road, whether it's in Belfast, 
Edinburgh, Manchester, wherever it is across the UK, being able to see the impact of our programme. That for me is definitely one of the highlights. One of the more challenging sides is as a leader having to make tough decisions. And the reality is we are a medium-sized charity. And as much as we'd love to support all the young people that need our help, we have to make choices. And one of the tough parts about my job that I don't like is where we have to kind of identify what the size of our lifeboat is. Uh, And there are people that need our programme, but due to our circumstances, we don't have the capacity to facilitate their need alongside those that we prioritise. So that's probably the bit of my job that I don't enjoy the most. That sounds like a really tough thing to do, deciding how you prioritize where the resources go and who gets it. That's like a really tough one. You know, the United Kingdom, we are supposed to be a developed nation. Why have we been unable to break the cycle of intergenerational poverty? I'd say a lot of people migrate because they have this dream of a country where everyone is flourishing. The reality is very different. Very different indeed. I literally just came back from visiting my team in the north of England, and you'll be aware about the narrative around the leveling up agenda, which very much feels like a narrative rather than a reality. And I think that the reality is that there are multiple components that relate to that intergenerational poverty reality that we're facing in the UK. And I think one of the key points is we need a more unified approach to those social challenges. We can't continue this vein of working in silo where you're talking about housing, you're talking about mental health, you're talking about parenting challenges. All of those kind of social factors intertwined relate to where we are as a country. And I think a prime example of that is for us as an organization, we can only deliver our program in viable circumstances. And the reason why I stress that is because a region like Cornwall in the southwest of the country is in desperate need of an offering like ours. However, we're not able to provide a viable model because we don't have the business community in that region to enable the volume of internships that we'll need to offer. So you've got a clear need, but you don't have the united agencies working together to respond to that. So I think we need to definitely think about joined up approach to solutions rather than a budget sitting over there and a budget sitting over there and not realizing the connectivity. I think another prime example of what I'm talking about is we recently had the initiative tackling youth unemployment called Kickstarter Scheme. Significant amount of resource went into Kickstarter Scheme. However, it was a standalone entity. So it's about identifying young adults who are unemployed at the moment and getting them into employment for a period of six months. But once that concluded, it just dropped off. So you're potentially dropping those young people back into the position where you found them. For me, a logical notion would have been connecting Kickstarter to our apprenticeship objectives and seeing that as almost like an introduction to an apprenticeship scheme. And that way you don't have that volatile narrative around a key social issue, which is uh, unemployment. Yeah, true. A lot of this has also got to do with how geographically different parts of the country are either developed or not developed and how much funding goes towards everything possibly in London or Southeast 
and as opposed to some other areas in England. So yeah, it is definitely challenging. And on the kickstart scheme, I think the volatility would be because a lot of people use that opportunity to get somebody on board, but they didn't have the bandwidth to continue to pay these people. And so it was a good learning. It was good support for that small business who hired them, but not great for the young people who at the end of it found themselves back to square one. Yeah, we've been here before, though. This is the challenge. It was a totally different government. I think 2008, 2009, last recession, we had something called the Future Jobs Fund, literally replica kind of model. But again, it stood in isolation. So the frustration, I suppose, is when are we going to learn from our own history and enhance those propositions, which as an entity, the objective is brilliant. It's about the sustainability and how do you then make it long-term viable to see the return on that investment. True. So what do you think is the role of education and how important is it for young people to be able to access higher education? There are so many conversations about the value of university degrees. And I've heard that funding has been decreasing or there's not enough for a long term to enable transformation. What is your sense? I know that people from black and ethnic minority communities are interested in higher education, but often it is the cost. And at this time, when people are really thinking university education, is it required at all? Yeah, well, I think we're in a different time to say when we had that kind of boom in migration. So for those of us that have our first generation, British African or British Asian, it's a really different time to when our parents were first arriving on these shores. So first and foremost, education is key. It's critical. That as a principle doesn't go out of date and doesn't shift. But the circumstances of what is required to your point around the cost I think it's about ensuring that young people are making informed decisions. It's very rare for young people coming from the backgrounds that we work with that have the luxury to go to university just for the experience. Those days have come and gone, right? It really does have to service what you're trying to do with your life moving forward. So the informed decision is there are certain traditional industries and sectors where university education is still critical, right? But that's not necessarily the narrative for all industries. So this is why for us it's really important that young people get that exposure to what is available and then making informed choices about how that can support them. So if I had my time now all over again, rather than going to university and studying journalism, I probably would have gone on to an apprenticeship degree or a degree apprenticeship, right? Where you're getting the best of both worlds. You get that qualification whilst learning on the job, whilst being paid, paid rather yeah. than how long it took me to pay off my student loan. Absolutely. <laughs> that was nowhere near the cost of what the student loan is now. So I think it's that point. And I think the fact is we cannot underestimate the position of poverty within society and how that impacts people's decisions. True. Do you think the private sector has a big role to play in supporting young people? And do you believe that it should be as much or more than what the government is doing? Because how much can the government do and what can the government do? Yeah, I think in that point, private sector definitely have a role to play. But I think like a cocktail or a salad, it requires a number of agents coming together. 
yeah. and seeing the kind of some of its parts and seeing the benefits to all entities. So if you're thinking about it from a business perspective, when it comes to diversifying workforces, there's a plethora of research out there that reinforces the profitability and the business sense of diversifying your workforce. So from a socioeconomic kind of point of view, I don't need to kind of beat that drum. But at the same time, how that supports businesses alongside society is that you're removing a cost from society, i.e. a young person on unemployment benefits and empowering them to become a positive asset where they're feeding into the economy through their disposable income and the businesses accessing talent that they wouldn't normally get access to. So I don't necessarily think there is a hierarchy of who should be more responsible. I think, again, it's about that collaborative approach of understanding that each entity has a benefit of us finding a long-term viable solution to this. So I've seen some great examples of employers evolving the way they work and, and making sure that they can tackle social mobility. Some are further along that journey than others, and there are like the trailblazers and providing those examples of best practice. And that's cross-industry. But you're right. I definitely agree that it's a requirement that business needs to look at. And I think a great example of that collaborative approach, I'm not sure if you're aware of something in Scotland called the Young Person's Guarantee, which literally has that each of those stakeholders coming together, unified approach to a long-term solution. Yeah, that sounds like a really good idea. Moving on to a new sudden Trust research on the impact of accents on social mobility finds pervasive accent bias. And it highlights the link between accents, socioeconomic background, social mobility. And we've seen this in our workplaces. We see this every day. So the report is factual, but we see this. There's anecdotal evidence and there is real life evidence to show that. And it is disturbing, actually, that it does impact the life chances of people and especially people who are already marginalized. What are your views on how we can address this bias? I mean, there was a few recommendations within the report, which I think are kind of sensible and practical steps. But I do think it is about ensuring that diversity from a leadership lens. So the fact of the matter is we need more diversity of experience, lived experience, and that will be reflected in people's accents as well. So I think if you were to kind of focus on any particular aspect where we need to really drive that development. It's in leadership. It's in senior management roles and setting ourselves some specific targets around what that looks like in regards to diversity of lived experience. Because I think in certain industries, it's very challenging. If you're thinking about the kind of banking and law, for example, insurance, these are some of the more traditional industries which have got further to go compared to, say, the creative industries or digital industries. So for me, I think it is about utilizing the recommendations within the report. But if there was anywhere that I would hone in on that and really hold employers to task, it's around that senior leadership piece. Yeah, I think it starts with leadership. If you don't have that sort of uh, exposure and commitment, you're never going to move on this agenda. So we discussed this slightly at the start before we started recording the podcast, but COVID, the cost of living crisis, energy costs is pushing the new generation into poverty. 
And before all of this happened, I mean, we knew that COVID has already sort of exacerbated the inequalities and there has been setback in progress. How are we going to deal with all of this, including with what the announcements that Jeremy Hunt has made yesterday? Yeah, I think pre-pandemic, the profile of young people we work with, I think some of the most impressive qualities about them is they are some of the most tenacious and resilient individuals of their generation, just based on their lived experience. And that was pre-pandemic or pre-living crisis, living costs of where we are. So I think how we have to support this generation is really adapting to the fact that we're in a different climate and really understanding what support looks like now compared to 2019. Just even the idea of a number of young people not having access to digital resources that enable them to enhance their potential, that's a key factor. We've recently did some research in partnership with Total Jobs, and it said about 50% of 16 to 18-year-olds are no longer confident about securing the job that they desire. So there is a real level of anxiety, a real level of disappointment within this Generation Z, whether they're school leavers or whether they have aspirations of going into the higher education. So many of them are adapting and changing to the circumstance. And I think it's just about us providing them with as much wraparound support as we can. I think a prime example of what I'm referring to when I say wraparound support is there are the practical components around their careers, et cetera, but also mental health. One of the organizations that we have a relationship with is a charity called Young Minds. And during the pandemic, their hotline for parents that needed support went up by 400%. So that was in the height of the pandemic. So now we're in the cost of living crisis, which compounds that. I expect that to be even more. So we have to be creative in what fit-for-purpose support looks like for Generation Z. So you've already spoken about some of the remedial actions that we can do to support young people. But all of this, is it that we make changes in the macro policies or the funding decisions and then things can be different? Uh, I would say yes. But I think having a stronger, wider employment market is definitely where we need to go. But for me, I think an example of what we can replicate right across the UK is what they're pioneering in Scotland with the Young Persons Guarantee, because that is about long-term sustainability. It's not a short-term solution, which gives you a a spike for a quarter when it comes to youth unemployment. It's woven into the fabric of doing things differently in, in more of an alliance approach. So yes, definitely is about macro policy but it's also about understanding what role each component plays in that long-term positive outcome. Very interesting to hear that. I was doing some background research while drafting the questions, and I realized that social mobility has not been on recent party election manifestos. And I saw that there is an APPG on social mobility headed by Baroness Tyler of Enfield. How effective or how powerful is that APPG? And can we get real change without political will? Because that sounds nigh impossible. Yeah, I think the APPG 
is brilliant for what it is. And that's the fact that it brings together interested parties in this space. And it kind of provides a driver and a think tank space for change. But you're absolutely right. We're not going to see that change until central government is brought into it and prioritizing that. Now, this is where, in theory, the leveling up agenda could and should come into play because it's intertwined into the reality of the social mobility profile. So for me, and the recent autumn statement in regards to the cuts to the levelling up agenda, it just feels like we're going in a bit of a vicious cycle. So I can't see foreseeable significant government change unless we can see some meat behind the words that have been banded around the levelling up agenda. That needs a lot more structure, a lot more focus and targets that we can hold the powers that be accountable to. So yeah, the APPG is great as an entity, but it doesn't have power to create the change that we need to see. I think that's very interesting what, what you've said. I don't think anything can shift without political will and with the buy-in. Uh, and then that has to continue across governments. It can't change because some new government is there or new people are there. All of this work that you do, you get a lot of support from the private sector or the government. How do you measure progress? And what are the indicators you definitely need to consider to get an accurate picture of how you're measuring whether you're creating the right impact. Yeah. So what we do at the moment is, first of all, we focus on the profile of the young person. And I think a, a key component of success and progress that we're making is measuring apples with apples. So in the past, it's very tempting to kind of measure a cohort against an average across the nation. That's not accurate or appropriate, right? So what you need to actually do is measure the profile of that young person. They get a control group of young people that don't have access to the program and see like for like what kind of outputs you've got. So that's what we've started to do as an organization. And we've been really invested in our data and impact results to enable us to do that in a proficient manner. But in addition to that, it's the longitudinal research. So that's about engaging our alumni because the kind of work that we're doing is not short-term. So yes, we can have immediate results within, have they gone into a positive destination after 12 or 18 months engagement? That's fine. But I'm more interested in where are they three years, five years from there? What impact has our program had on their long-term futures and the decisions that they've made? And what's even more profound is then measuring what impact that their journey has had in their family, in their local community, because then it's about inspiring that change. Literally just a couple of weeks ago, I was in Belfast visiting some of our students, and there was a young man who did an internship at Citibank. He used to walk past the building every day, didn't know what went on in there. Secured an internship, impressed them so much, was invited to one of their assessment centres for an apprenticeship. And he started that apprenticeship this month in Citibank. So this was an organization that he knew nothing about 12 months ago. He walked past every day. And now he's in a family of six where at the age of 19, 20, he's become the highest earner in that family. That is fundamental historic change. So I'd be really interested to see what impact that has in his life five years from now. So we're starting to put the building blocks in place to help us look at the 
long-term picture. It's very predictable and very enticing to want to see immediate responses within our sector. A lot of the time, funding is triggered about what are the outputs, right? Mm -hmm. I think we need to be measuring to equal value the long-term outcomes of the work that we do. So that's how we're approaching that subject. I think it makes sense to do that because that's the real indication what they're doing at the end of the apprenticeship. So we are almost nearly on the last two questions. If you had a superpower, what would you choose and what would you do with it? Well, superpower, what superpower would I have? What would I do with it? I think, being totally frank, I I think it would be to read minds. (laughs) 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 Yeah, I think it would be to read minds because I think we could save a lot of time We could be really efficient with time where you're having the same conversations year in, year out. If I could read minds and understand, and it's not about manipulating people, but it's about understanding what their driver is. It's understanding what their aspiration is. And then if I'm able to understand that, I can articulate whether I can achieve that or not with what I'm presenting. I think what we're presenting as a sector, because I don't think we're at the point now where we need to justify the narrative of why we need to make a change when it comes to social mobility, right? But what we do need to tap into is helping people understand the benefit to them. And that's the bit that I think being able to read minds would save me a lot of time. But also, <laughs> also I think it will help us really achieve more win-win scenarios when we're working with entities across the board. Yeah, I think it's so important to be able to align with whatever their drivers are. And generally, it's not easy to understand. Also, I think a lot of people engage in conversations because if you look at your organization, you're well known, the imperatives are well established. So they probably believe in it at a certain level, but they've not still come to that place where they understand how it benefits it's good for them also. Yes, that, that is a really good one. And the last question, who are the people who inspire and motivate you? Because this is a oh, tough job. Yeah, that's a really, really, really interesting question. And to be brutally honest, I think my mom is one of my biggest inspirations. She came to the UK in the 60s from Nigeria, brought up five of us wow. in the East End of London. I'm the middle child. And till this day, I don't know how she did <laughs> I don't know how she did it. So there is a certain kind of creative spark of yeah. her being able to make ends meet and not just ends meet, but inspire us to be audacious and ambitious beyond what we could see within our immediate environment. Because for many of us, where we end up in life is a combination of the choices we make and the circumstances that we live within. So if I was a student today, I would very much reflect the profile of student that Career Ready works with. So for me, in regards to inspiration, my mom is definitely one of my biggest inspirations. And then another inspiration really was the late Dame Anita Roddick, who owned Body Shop. Yeah. And the reason why she was an inspiration for me is because she found this middle ground between making social and environmental positive impact whilst also generating surplus and generating a profit. So it's not one or the other. And this is where I kind of fell in love with the whole concept of social enterprise, because it's that duality of making the world a better place, 
but also achieving fantastic commercial objectives simultaneously and not apologizing for one or the other. And I think it's too easy for us in society to see it as one or the other when actually brave agents of change like Elise Roderick were really inspiring for me in regards to how I think and my approach to, to the work that I do. Yeah. It's phenomenal to hear about your mother. I'm sure she's an amazing person. I don't know they did it. They just persevered and got on with it and there was no complaining. And it was just looking forward and dreaming the dream of the future for their children. I think that's what the aspiration was. And of course, Body Shop, I think the brilliant part about them was that Long before it became stylish to talk about a purpose, they were doing it and they were living it. So that's amazing. Really, really good. I love hearing these responses. And the middle child bit. I have a middle child. I have three kids and my middle child always says, oh, I I think my mom forgets about me. (laughs) I'm like the bridge in our family. Like in March next year, my mom will turn 80. So we're going to do a big celebration for her. But yeah, I'm always that peacekeeper. That's been my role um, for our family. Best wishes. And I'm sure I'll wish you uh, for your mother next year. Thank you so much for making time. Pleasure. It's been such a wonderful conversation. Likewise. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week on the Elephant in the Room podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on any of your favorite platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts. And if you enjoyed listening to the podcast today, don't forget to write a review and tell your friends. Sign up on the link in the show notes to receive updates on our guest speakers, blogs and events. And don't forget to tune in every Thursday for new episodes.